What's up, Ninja Nerds? We are here for episode 13 of our podcast. Today, we're talking about vasopressors. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're using our notes. We're literally right now, I, I have it up on the computer. Zach has it memorized and is nogging because he's crazy. <laughs> And we're going to be talking about vasopressors. But again, we're actually on page 13 of vasopressors in our notes. We're looking at the appendix. We're going to actually go through each and every vasopressor there is, talking about the drug, mechanism of action, indications, titration parameters, pros, cons, and the route of administration. So again, guys, you got to go on engineer.org, grab this note so you can follow along. And there's also illustrations, too, to help you out. But without further ado, let's get right into it. Zach, here we go. All right, my friends, let's talk about vasopressors. Very important core topic to your critical care medicine and emergency medicine. So one of the big things is when we talk about vasopressors, you can kind of put them in these different groupings or categories. I just think it's easier to memorize them and understand like their mechanism of action based upon these categories. So the first group that we're going to discuss is inodilators. Okay. So inodilators, the primary ones that I want you guys to remember is dobutamine and milrinone. And we'll have a little discussion about something called isoproteranol. So the first one, dobutamine. Dobutamine is a really interesting drug. And the mechanism of action of this drug is a primarily a beta agonist. So what it does is it binds onto those beta-1 receptors on the heart, so the, on the nodal cells. So it can bind onto the SA node, the AV node, and really up the activity of those two structures. And if you have the AV node and the SA node firing at a faster rate, you have a faster rate firing, a faster conduction, it's going to increase your heart rate. That's one thing. And if you increase heart rate, you increase cardiac output and potentially blood pressure. But prior Primarily, the cardiac output is the key thing. The other thing is that the uh, drug dobutamine also can act on the beta-1 receptors on the contractile myocardial cells. And so that's going to be able to increase the contractility of those cells, help to be able to generate a stronger stroke volume, a stronger cardiac output, theoretically an increased blood pressure. But again, it's primarily an increase in cardiac output. Now, the other thing about dobutamine is it's not really super selective. It can bind onto beta-1 receptors in the heart, but it also has a little bit of beta-2 receptor activity on the vessels. And so <clears throat> when you look at your vessels, they have alpha-1 receptors, which are primarily for like vasoconstriction. And then you also have beta-2 receptors. <clears throat> With beta-2 receptors, what they do is they generate that vasodilatory effect, right? And then your alpha-1 receptors generate that vasoconstriction effect. If you give someone dobutamine, it may help to be able to increase the activity on the beta-2 receptor and produce a little bit of a vasodilatory effect. And so that's why when we talk about these drugs, when you have that category as inodilator, it's an inotrope, meaning it gives you a good squeeze to the heart. That's primarily one of the big things to remember, but it also can dilate your vessels. So it can cause a little bit of vasodilation. Now think about that. If you have someone who is squeezing their heart and generating a larger cardiac output, that should potentially and theoretically increase their blood pressure. But if you also cause them to act on the beta-2 receptors in the vessels and dilate the vessels, that can lower their systemic vascular resistance and potentially drop their blood pressure and afterload. So really important to remember that. Now, when we talk about dobutamine, what are the primary like indications for dobutamine? One of the big things for this one is it can be used in cardiogenic shock. So think about it. It's used to be able to generate a good cardiac output, squeeze the heart, increase the heart rate a little bit. So with that being said, I think in a patient who has like very bad cardiogenic shock where their EF sucks and they're not able to generate a good cardiac output, if you use something like dobutamine, it may be able to increase their cardiac output. And so that's one particular thing. The other thing is you can use it as an add-on in patients who have septic shock. So if someone has septic shock, generally their EF is hyperdynamic to compensate for their hypotension and their septic state. But as the actual disease progresses in septic shock, sometimes what can happen is they can lower their EF. So they can have a, so it's called a septic shock with a reduced ejection fraction. 
In those situations, you may be able to give them dobutamine as an add-on therapy. So they may be on something that we'll talk about later called norepinephrine. But on top of that, maybe you add a little bit of dobutamine to get a little bit more squeeze, a little bit more cardiac output, in there, uh, and, and you might see an increase in their actual blood pressure with that. So those are the big things I would say for dobutamine, for indication-wise. Whenever you're titrating dobutamine, this is the challenge with it. So whenever you're utilizing this, generally they prefer, um, we use like Swangon's catheter. So you have like a pulmonary artery catheter and you can kind of calculate the cardiac output based upon like these particular equations utilizing like SCVO2 and et cetera. But I think one of the big things with this drug is that it's important that you have to titrate it against cardiac output. And that's where you can use the Swanscon catheter. You don't ever want to titrate this against your actual blood pressure. So the mean arterial pressure, if you're saying, okay, start them on dobutamine and titrate it to a map greater than 65, watch out because their pressure may drop because it dilates the vessels. And so that's a really important thing. So whenever you're titrating its cardiac output, there's a lot of ways that you can do that. Maybe it's like serial echocardiography, where you're looking at their heart, looking to see what their EF is doing prior to starting them on dobutamine, get them on the dobutamine, and then do the echo afterwards and say, okay, what happened to that heart? Did it look like it's squeezing more? Are we getting every ounce of blood that's squeezed out of that heart? The other thing is you could look at urine output, seeing if their urine output is actually increasing and improving. If your cardiac output's up, you should technically be perfusing the kidneys better. Looking at the skin, did their skin look cold, clammy, poorly perfused, and now it looks a little bit more well perfused. They have a nice good hue. They have good capillary refill, et cetera. But sometimes it's easier to just kind of calculate the cardiac output utilizing a Swanscon's catheter. And sometimes they'll do that with the SCVO2. But I think that's one big thing for the titration parameters. Now, what are the actual pros or you know cons behind the actual dobutamine? One of the big things about dobutamine is that it has a very short half-life. So it's easily titratable, super easily titratable. And that's one true benefit to this drug. I think the primary con behind this though is that if you use it for a long time, it can kind of become tachyphylactic. So you can kind of lose the actual strong effect of it. So the drug can actually start to have a decreased effectiveness because what happens is those beta receptors, they start to become desensitized and you actually start down-regulating those beta receptors. And so you start you stop getting that much of a kick out of the actual dobutamine, which is kind of interesting because it's kind of like an auto-titration of the drug. But that's one particular thing with long kind of like use, um, you can actually cause a desensitization or down-regulation or a tachyphylactic axis of this. The other thing I would say actually to be a little bit careful of is because dobutamine does help to increase your heart rate. If you have a patient who is like super tachycardic, like AFib with RVR and they're beating at 180 beats per minute, dobutamine might not be the best choice for you because you might get a little bit more uh, tachycardia with that. And so that's something I would also be very careful with is if you have a patient who's super tachycardic already, dobutamine might exacerbate that. And that leads us to the next drug, milrinone. So milrinone is a really interesting drug. So this one actually is what's called a phosphodiesterase 3 inhibitor. And so basically what it does is it kind of like prevents the uh, degradation of cyclic AMP with inside of our muscle cells. And what that does is that increases the contraction of the cardiac muscle, but also relaxes the actual smooth muscle in our vessels. And so that'll help to be able to kind of increase your cardiac output because it gives you more of the squeeze of the heart, right? So if you get the heart to be able to squeeze more, you're going to generate a larger cardiac output, potentially, maybe a potential increase in blood pressure. But because it actually causes the relaxation of the smooth muscles within the vessels, again, it can reduce your systemic vascular resistance and potentially drop your blood pressure. So again, fits in that easy to remember category called inodilators. Now, one of the benefits for milrinone is again, same thing as dobutamine. You can use this in cardiogenic shock to get more squeeze because Milrinone is good for being able to give you a good contractility. That would be one thing. A patient who has a sucky heart and they're not having a good EF or a septic shock with a low EF. 
When you're titrating it, same thing with dobutamine. You have to titrate this to cardiac output. If you titrate it to MAP, don't be surprised whenever the nurse comes and says, hey, the blood pressure is 20 over dead, and I'm, I'm really struggling with this milrinone to titrate it to get it a MAP greater than 65. When you do that, you're going to potentially increase their cardiac output, but dilate their vessels and drop their pressure. So just be aware of that. You don't titrate it to MAP. You want to titrate to a some parameter of cardiac output. What's the pro to this one in comparison to dobutamine? I think one of the big things is that it has a better vasodilatory effect. So therefore it could drop your pressure a little bit more, but in a patient who has like a very like severe type of like aortic stenosis or some type of like critical type of issue with their heart, like a, a very bad cardiogenic shock, like a very severe left heart failure where they have high afterload and you really want to reduce their afterload to get more blood out of the heart, that might be a better drug. And the other thing is it doesn't really cause any of that tachycardic effect. So if you have a patient who is in AFib with RVR and you don't want to start dobutamine, milrinone might be a better option for these patients. The only downside of this one is it's renally excreted and eliminated. So if a patient is in in-stage renal disease, they have a terrible acute kidney injury, they have very bad CKD, you can potentially accumulate the milrinone and cause its effects to be a little bit more powerful than generated, uh, than the new would want. So that's one of the big things for milrinone. The last one that kind of fits kind of nicely a little bit within this category of inodilators is isoproteranol. So isoproteranol is a really cool drug. It's primarily, and really important to remember, it's primarily a beta-1 agonist. It doesn't really have a lot of that beta-2 agonistic activity that dobutamine has. And so with this drug, if you have a lot of beta-1 activity, you're going to increase your heart rate and you're going to increase the contractility. And so one of the big things about this drug is I, I'm telling you, Rob, I think isoproteranol could get like a heart rate out of a rock. Like if you have a patient who is like near death, like bradycardic periarrest, they're getting ready to look like they potentially could code. Their heart rates are like 20s and you just are very nervous that they could collapse at any moment. This is a drug I think that would be a really good drug that could really get a heart rate for you up in a, in a very quick amount of time. So I would say that this is one of those drugs that primary indications is for those patients who are very, very severely bradycardic. Maybe they have like a a very severe heart block um, of some particular reason, and you really need to be able to get their heart rate up, this would be one of those drugs that I would say really, really good at being able to get a heart rate out of a rock. So bradycardic periarrest, very severe kind of like uh, AV blocks, likely this would be a good drug. And again, when you titrate, it's really easy. You don't really work too much on this one for blood pressure. It's really good for those heart rates. So you titrate it to a particular heart rate goal that you have. Maybe it's greater than 60 beats per minute. That's what you're looking for. So you can titrate that actual medication until you have that desired heart rate. The other thing I would say for this patient is uh, that when you're looking at this drug, it's really good at getting a heart rate um, for you, but it's super expensive, extremely expensive for this drug. And that's one of the downsides, I think, for isoproteranol. The um, big things for these, again, for your inodilators, I would say the question that may come up is like route of administration, like we talked about. Do these patients need an arterial line? Can you run this through a peripheral IV? Do they need a central line? So with some of these medications, especially like dobutamine and milrinone, Sometimes because you're trying to target this and titrate it against a very particular type of parameter, such as cardiac output, sometimes they may suggest putting in like what's called a pulmonary artery catheter or a Swansconce catheter to be able to calculate that SCVO2. But I would actually kind of like say um, that's not absolutely necessary. These drugs are beneficial to run through a central line. And I would say because these drugs have the potential to potentially drop your blood pressure, I think an arterial line would definitely be a good thing to, to consider for these drugs. Um, 
but that would be the primary things for this, Rob, with respect to kind of the mechanism of action, the indications, titration parameters, pros, cons, and then again, that route of administration. That's awesome, man. And I'm, I'm just here to, to let everyone know that I'm still here and I'm, <laughs> and I'm still conscious. So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit because I feel like I have to give you a break uh, after all that information. Know, all right. right? That was a lot. Grab a drink of water or something. Yeah, uh, that was see a lot, What can we man. talk about? Oh, I got it. Um, uh, Kristen, she just uh, graduated with her master's of nursing. Yeah, baby. So big congratulations, congratulations to her. Congratulations, Kristen. Uh, she's had her, ma- uh, her master's of nursing for a little while now, but she officially walked across that stage. It was pretty awesome. Shout out to Kristen. Yeah, it's a great accomplishment, man. Seriously. Yeah, yeah it's pretty awesome. How, how, how are you doing? You, are you recuperated yet? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Uh, again, I uh, worked a overnight uh, shift last night at the ICU, but I am I'm very good. I'm ready to roll, man. I got oh, the yeah, energy. You, Let's you get it back. You look great, man. You're, you're looking well uh, uh, alert and <laughs> feeling good. But that was the inodilators, as we talked about. We're going to move now into the next category as Zach's going to give you the full rundown on inopressors. Yeah, so this category is probably the ones that you'll see a lot of in an ICU. So inopressors are, again, within the name. So if you think about inodilators, they're giving you an increase in contractility, but they're dilating those vessels. And again, that's your dobutamine or milrinum. And then isoproteranol is kind of that little funky one that's primarily for those patients who are bradycardic. For the inopressors, these are going to give you an increase in the contractility of the heart, but they're also going to squeeze the vessel. So they're a presser, too. Now, with these two, I think about norepinephrine and epinephrine. So with norepinephrine, norepinephrine is primarily an alpha-1 agonist, but it also is a beta agonist, primarily way more alpha than beta. So because of that, think about the alpha receptors. If you bind to an alpha-1 receptor, it's going to induce vasoconstriction. That's going to increase your resistance and increase your blood pressure. So it's really good at being able to increase the patient's blood pressure or their MAP. The other one is that it's a beta-1 receptor agonist. So it's going to increase your heart rate a little bit. That'll increase your stroke, I mean, your cardiac output and potentially increase your blood pressure. And it also can increase the contractility of the heart. That can increase your stroke volume, increase your cardiac output, and potentially increase your blood pressure. The other one is epinephrine. Now, epinephrine is really interesting because epinephrine is like one of those really interesting drugs where at low doses, kind of on the lower end, maybe like zero to maybe like four or five mics, you start to see a very high beta agonist activity. And so this is where you'll primarily see like an increase in their heart rate, an increase in the contractility of their heart, and they may have an increase in their cardiac output, an increase in their blood pressure. But on the higher doses, as you start going from five to like 10 mics, then you start seeing primarily an alpha-1 receptor activity. And so you're going to see more of that vasoconstriction effect, increase in systemic vascular resistance, and increase in blood pressure. That's one of the cool things about the epinephrine. Now, when we talk about these two drugs, what are their indications? For norepinephrine and epinephrine, these are really good drugs for septic shock. Norepinephrine, there's a lot of studies out there, a lot of RCTs that say that norepinephrine should technically be like your first line uh, vasopressor within septic shock. But there is also some uh, in, uh, some articles out there that showed that epinephrine was also pretty good as well. So primarily septic shock for these. But also think about it. If they do give you a little bit of that inotropic kick, they help the, the heart to squeeze, what also could you utilize this in conjunction with the dobutamine and milrinone to support their blood pressure? Because those drugs, dobutamine and milrinone, are supposed to increase cardiac output, but they could drop your blood pressure, right? They can drop your MAP a little bit. What other drug could you add on to those 
to dobutamine, to milrinone, or maybe even by itself to be able to increase contractility and get a little bit more, more blood out of the heart to kick the heart up a little bit. You could use this in cardiogenic shock as well. And I would say that if you're comparing these between norepinephrine, epinephrine, because epinephrine has more of that beta-1 activity, you'll probably get a better kick with this in your cardiogenic shock patients. But again, norepinephrine, epinephrine, good in your septic shock patients. Epinephrine may be a little bit better in those with a cardiogenic shock. The other thing for epinephrine that's really cool is we can use this also in those patients who are very bradycardic. So have a severe bradycardia, they're starting to get hypotensive, altered, they're having symptoms are kind of like declining with respect to their blood pressure. You can put somebody on an epinephrine infusion because it also can increase that beta-1 receptor activity and increase your heart rate. So this might be one of those drugs to add on if a patient is getting very bradycardic and unstable with respect to that. So you can add that if like atropine doesn't work. Sometimes you start with an epi and then again, you can start to drip on that. So that might actually be beneficial in a bradycardic patient who's near the point of pericardic arrest. The other thing is anaphylactic shock. So this is actually one of those that you can use at IM primarily, but if you need to and they're having a hypotension and other kind of systemic hypoperfusion issues, you can definitely do an epinephrine uh, drip to be able to kind of get a better uh, situation with that. Now, when we're talking about norepinephrine, epinephrine, what are the primary ways that you titrate this drug? So you're starting at a very particular dosage. Okay, I need to titrate this drug up and up and up against what? Well, you titrate the actual medication until you find a map, their mean arterial pressure that's greater than about 65 millimeters of mercury. They're greater than or equal to. But as long as you're getting to that number, you're generally going to be perfusing most of your organs pretty darn well, um, at least good enough. And so that's one of the important things with norepinephrine, epinephrine, you titrate the medication until you reach that pressure goal. Now, what are the potential benefits to norepinephrine in comparison to your epinephrine? I think one of the big things is that we know that there's a lot of literature out there that norepinephrine is very good in a patient who has septic shock and even cardiogenic shock. Epinephrine, one of the actual cool things about this one is that we know it's good at septic shock, cardiogenic shock, but you know what else is interesting? It can also act on those beta-2 receptors in the lungs. And so it can actually induce bronchodilation, which may be beneficial in patients who have COPD, asthma, or again, other kind of issues with their anaphylactic shock. So I think that's a really cool thing about that one. With these two drugs, think about it. They have beta-1 receptor activity. So a potential downfall is that you could cause a patient, if they get on high doses of norepinephrine, epinephrine, you could start seeing a little bit more tachycardia out of them. And so watch out for those patients who are really getting super tachycardic, who have you know atrial fibrillation with a rapid ventricular rate. That might be a drug that you need to be a little bit cautious of when you're titrating these medications up. The other thing is whenever you get, are utilizing epinephrine, one of the big things I think is important to be aware of is whenever a patient starts getting kind of septic, we constantly cycle things like lactate because we, we utilize this concept of lactate as a marker of perfusion to the tissues. And it may or may not, there's a lot of like contradictory evidence and I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole. But one of the big things to think about with epinephrine, don't be surprised if you start someone on epinephrine infusion and you're training those lactates, you see their lactates start going up and up and up and up. And the reason why is because lactate production is not just an anaerobic marker um, of potential like decreased perfusion. It's also kind of a stress production. So sometimes when your sympathetic nervous system is super activated, it can activate the beta-2 receptors on the liver, which can increase the actual production of lactate. And so sometimes you can see this when you put a person on epinephrine and it's really binding onto those beta-2 receptors on the liver, acting like a sympathetic hormone, which it is, and bumping that lactate. 
And so that's one of the big things. Just be careful. Don't be afraid. Don't don't be scared that the lactate's going up. Embrace the lactate. It actually could be a sign that the patient is improving. And so that's one of the big things to think about. So that's that. Now, the question I think is asked about this is, again, route of administration. Do you need an arterial line? Do you need a central line? Can you run these through the peripheral IV? The data is actually pretty suggestive that, you know, epinephrine, I mean, think about it. You stab like large, crazy dosages um, of like epinephrine into like your finger or in different areas. And you don't end up causing necrosis of the digit because the theory is like if you run these drugs through a peripheral IV, what if it extravasates? It leaks out of the vasculature or it causes the vessels to kind of really clench down. And then you start actually developing a reduced blood flow to the digits. And then you cause a necrotic digit. Your fingers start falling off. If, if that's, yeah, is, is it a possibility with epinephrine and norepinephrine or any of these kind of pressors? There's actually data to show that there really is no kind of what's called extravasation necrosis from epinephrine. You could run those through peripheral IV and they're very safe. Should we have an arterial line uh, compared to a blood pressure cuff? I think it's important to remember that if you have a patient who's really sick, it's not a bad idea to have an arterial line in them um, to be able to have a continuous monitoring of their blood pressure, especially if you're having difficulty titrating your medications. It's nice to have that arterial line in these patients. The other thing is norepinephrine. What about that one? Can I run that one through peripheral IV? You can run norepinephrine through the peripheral IVs as well. There's not as much data, uh, but it's also been somewhat suggested that this one doesn't have a lot of extravasation necrosis as well. But I would be careful if I have a patient on norepinephrine, I've had it on for about 24 hours and their doses are kind of like staying at a relatively high rate. I would consider getting a central line on these patients because, again, you don't want to be running it through a peripheral IV for that long. And then again, arterial lines are never going to be a bad thing to run through these patients whenever they have a septic shock, a cardiogenic shock. And they're, again, titrating multiple pressors against the blood pressure target. So that's the big things for these guys. Um, that would cover these, Rob. We talked about inopressors. We made another, we made another one. We're moving, we're, we're moving along. That's category two of five. We got one. <laughs> now there's, there's three more categories left, but there's really just one more big category. And that's going to be your pure vasopressors. So Zach, go ahead and lead us off here. What's going on with the pure vasopressors? Right. So we had inodilators. And again, that was your dubutamine milrone. Primarily they squeeze the heart, dilate the vessels, good for cardiogenic shock. Inopressors, they squeeze the heart, squeeze the vessels, good for your septic shock, cardiogenic shocks. And then again, you can add on the bradycardic periarrestant anaphylaxis for the epinephrine. The pure vasopressors, they don't really give a good squeeze to the heart. So they're not really primarily that inotropic. They don't even have any kind of chronotropic activity. So they don't really do anything to the heart rate as well. They primarily act on alpha-1 receptors or other types of receptors that are on the vessels, the, the actual vessels, and cause those to squeeze. So they're primarily squeezing vessels, which increases your systemic vascular resistance and increases your blood pressure. Now, the three within this category are phenylephrine, vasopressin, and angiotensin-2. Now, with these, the more commonly utilized one is going to be phenylephrine, vasopressin, and then angiotensin 2 is, we'll talk about that one. That's last resort. If you're at that one, that's, you know, it's not good. Oh, so, great. Good. <laughs> it's usually it's, it's going to be okay. Let's go to comfort at this point whenever okay. you see wow. a patient on that, like uh, angiotensin 2. So it's usually the last line, but we'll talk about that one. So phenylephrine. When we talk about this one, it's primarily the alpha-1 receptor agonist. Very pretty. I like this drug. I really am a big fan of phenylephrine. It gets a lot of hate, but I, I actually like this drug. 
One of the things you see with this drug is it gives a good vasoconstrictive response. So if it vasoconstricts via the alpha-1 receptor binding, it's going to increase your systemic vascular resistance and increase your blood pressure. What kind of patient would you actually utilize this in? A septic shock patient. So a patient who's in septic shock, they're vasodilatory. So if you give them something like phenylephrine, it'll vasoconstrict them and help to be able to generate a more intense resistance and a bigger change in their blood pressure. So that's one of the big things for this one. I like this one. I think it's very similar to norepinephrine sometimes because with norepinephrine, it doesn't have an insane beta-1 activity. It's primarily an alpha-1 agonist with a little bit of beta-1 receptor activity. So when you compare phenylephrine and norepinephrine, they're really almost exactly the same in their mechanism of action. But I like this drug. Um, I prefer to, again, same thing. When you titrate this, what are you titrating it to? A MAP, a blood pressure target, generally a mean arterial pressure greater than 65 or at least equal to that. One of the things I think is important for this drug is when you're talking about the benefits of it, I think another thing that's really cool is that a lot of the time we kind of are constantly worried about the heart rate in these patients. Oh, their heart rate's getting up there. It's getting up to 150s, 160s, and they're on levo, they're on epinephrine. And so sometimes there is this thought that, you know, can phenylephrine be added on or switched over to phenylephrine? And the reason why is that phenylephrine, when it vasoconstricts your blood vessels, it creates a increase in the actual activation of the carotid baroreceptors. And they trigger the sympathetic nervous system to kind of shut down and your parasympathetic nervous system instead that's going to the heart becomes activated and it creates a reflexive bradycardia. So you actually kind of slow the heart rate down because you're vasoconstricting the vessels and potentially creating this reflex bradycardia. So it may be somewhat more beneficial if you have a patient who's already tacking away and has AFib with RVR, it might be one of those good drugs to consider. So the other thing with uh, neo or phenylephrine is what is potential cons? What are the downsides to this drug? So there is some evidence out there to suggest like, could it actually, because it's squeezing your vessels, could it increase the afterload? And if you already have a patient who is, you know, having some potential low EF, they have a low ejection fraction, they have a lot of like diastolic dysfunction or whatever, and they're already having difficult time getting blood out of their heart. Could it actually worsen their actual, like, uh, their, their, their blood pressure. Could it make it difficult, put more stress on the heart? And so that's one of the potential things is like being considerate. If a patient has a very, very significantly low EF, it might be a drug that you want to be a little bit careful with and say, okay, maybe we'll hold off on doing uh, uh, phenylephrine and maybe consider something like norepinephrine and epinephrine because, again, you're going to get a little bit more of that squeeze out of the heart. And so that's one thing to potentially consider. Now, the other thing I do want to say about phenylephrine, though, is what I like about this drug is sometimes we only think about it on the arterial side. So it's only causing alpha-1 receptors in the arterial side to vasoconstrict, increasing afterload. And then again, that could potentially lower the actual stroke volume out of the heart if you have a patient with low EF. But you also think about there's alpha-1 receptors in the veins. And so if you have alpha-1 receptors in the veins, you're going to squeeze those and increase the venous return to the right side of the heart, which would increase their preload, increase their stroke volume, increase their cardiac output and blood pressure. So I think that's one of the other things to be potentially considerate with. And this study that said that it could be a little bit more harmful in patients with low EFs, it was really when you were giving like a heavy bolus doses of phenylephrine as compared to like an infusion. But nonetheless, that's one of the potential downsides about phenylephrine is just being careful and cautious and uh, cognizant if they have a very low ejection fraction, it could put a lot of stress on their heart, increase their afterload. And then again, may make it a little bit more difficult in being able to generate a good stroke volume. The other drug in this category of pure vasopressors, I also enjoy this using this one, is vasopressin. So vasopressin is a really interesting drug. So it can actually act on two types of receptors. They call them vasopressin 1 and vasopressin 2 receptors. So the vasopressin 1 receptors are the big thing. That's one of the primary ways that this drug can actually generate a good strong blood pressure. 
is when it acts on the V1 receptors, what it does is it actually induces a very intense vasoconstrictive response, increasing your resistance, increasing your blood pressure, but it can increase your afterload. It also acts on the V2 receptors on the kidney in the, uh, the uh, collecting duct. And so because of that, it actually kind of acts like ADH. That's basically what vasopressin is. It's ADH. And so what it'll do is it'll increase water reabsorption across the collecting duct. So you get a larger blood volume. And so if you have larger blood volume, you technically will have larger blood pressure. And so that's one of the interesting things about vasopressin. So one of the things I'll do is if I have a patient who I, who's septic and I'm starting them on something like norepinephrine, which is going to be usually my first line and I'm still not having a strong effect, I may go to one of these two, phenylephrine or vasopressin as a next one. Sometimes I think vasopressin is a pretty good one at being able to be useful in these situations. If you want to try to be able to, again, increase their blood volume, increase their blood pressure, and get a little bit of vasoconstrictive response, I'm not, uh, I'm kind of like, I like adding on the vasopressin maybe sometimes before phenylephrine. So that's one potential thing. It could be a second line or add-on um, to your uh, patients who have septic shock. The other kind of indications, if you have a patient with like diabetes insipidus and diabetes insipidus, they're not really making ADH. And so you can give them the basically vasopressin, which is ADH. And so in that situation, in patients who have diabetes insipidus, if you don't make any ADH, you don't reabsorb any of the water across the collecting duct and you just pee out tons of dilute urine and the patient's sodium rises. And so in this kind of situation, you can give them vasopressin, especially if they're like near the point of herniation. If a patient's usually in central diabetes insipidus, it's likely that they're potentially near the point of herniation or they had something that happened. Sometimes it can be post um, pituitary gland resection. You can sometimes see that as well. But that's one thing. The other potential indication is hepatorenal syndrome. So in hepatorenal syndrome, there has been some studies that vasopressin may be somewhat beneficial because it may help to be able to go against a lot of that splanchnic like uh, vasodilation effect and reverse that. So that's one of the big things. For this drug, I would say, again, when you're titrating it, you titrate it to an actual blood pressure target, a MAP, greater than 65 is a nice thing. And what are the potential benefits or pros to this drug is it really is good at being able to increase your urine output. So that's one potential thing, which is a good thing in patients who have septic shock because sometimes their kidneys get hit pretty hard and they can actually have an acute kidney injury and become oligarch or aneric. But the other thing that's really interesting about this drug is it can actually potentially vasodilate your pulmonary vessels. And that might be a beneficial thing in a patient who's already kind of having difficulty in being able to maintain adequate pulmonary perfusion. Uh, sometimes when you add on phenylephrine, you can get a little bit more vasoconstriction of the pulmonary vessels, and that may drop a patient's O2 saturation. So having that little bit of a pulmonary vasodilator may be helpful if a patient is struggling with a little bit of hypoxemia or a little bit of like pulmonary hypertension or having those right-sided pressures being a little bit higher. One of the downsides, though, to vasopressin is I would never run this drug through a peripheral IV. There, the, this drug causes intense vasoconstriction. If it extravasates, you'll lose fingers. Like uh, you'll, they'll actually turn like black and like fall off. I, it's very, very intense drug. That can't be real. Oh no, man! Vasopressin is one of those. Like I don't mess with that one. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've seen people like actually like lose digits from oh my from vasopressin. Gosh. Yeah. So that's one that you know. Whenever it comes to this one, make sure that you have a central line for this one. Uh, phenylephrine is actually one of those you can run through a peripheral IV. There's lot of data out there to show that it's very safe. Um, so there's really no risk of extravasation necrosis with that one. Uh, but with vasopressin, I make sure that you get a central line. <laughs> try, try not to run that thing because it's usually a fixed dose. And so it's not really a titratable drug. And so with this one, it definitely has a very intense vasoconstrictive response. And if it extravasates, there's a strong chance of losing like digits because there's there's also no um, that's one of the big things I think is important to remember. I'll talk about that now, but there's no reversal agent. So if someone actually extravasates vasopressin into their tissues, you're done. 
And yeah, there's no way to actually reverse that. With the other ones like norepinephrine, um, there is one, and even phenylephrine a little bit, there's what's called phentolamine. You can actually, uh, like if they say that they have like an IV that's in the AC, and then what happens is maybe it moves out, and then a lot of the norepinephrine or the phenylephrine like leaked into the subcutaneous tissue. You can actually take phentolamine and inject it around that area, and it can kind of bind up and prevent a lot of the extravasation necrosis potentially from primarily norepinephrine. But with vasopressin, there's no antidote, and so there's a definite strong chance of like digital ischemia and potential like necrosis of the tissues. So that's one thing I'd be very, very careful of. The other one, and the last one within the pure vasopressor category is angiotensin 2. So angiotensin 2 works to be able to stimulate primarily angiotensin 2 receptors. And so think about that. That's a lot of things that it can do then. It can actually cause an intense vasoconstrictive response of your arterioles. That'll increase your resistance, increase your blood pressure. It also increases aldosterone. So it increases sodium and water reabsorption, increases your blood volume, your blood pressure. It increases ADH production. And so that's going to increase your water reabsorption, increase blood volume, increase blood pressure. And it squeezes on the efferent arterioles of the actual, um, the vessels in the kidney. And that will potentially help to increase the actual glomerular filtration rate and increase your urine output, which is an important thing in a patient who's in septic shock. Because sometimes they can develop an acute kidney injury and they become oligarch or anarch and then they start becoming acidotic or uremic. And that's a big thing. So angiotensin two, when do we use this one? I'm telling you, it's more like a last ditch effort. It's really one of those patients who's like really septic. They're maxed on norepinephrine. They're maxed on epinephrine. They're maxed on phenylephrine. They're maxed on vasopressin. And we're still not being able to generate a blood pressure. And you're like, well, frack it. Let's try angiotensin two, geoprezza, see if that helps. So it's more of kind of one of those add-on therapies, last-ditch effort. There has been some studies out there that say which patient would potentially benefit from angiotensin 2, you may find some benefit. And one of the things that they said is you look for that renin angiotensin dysfunction. So if they're renin levels, if you check their renin levels and they're greater than or equal to 200, they may be of benefit. Or renal replacement therapy, these patients have actually shown some potential benefit to utilizing angiotensin 2. Or if before they got critically ill, they were utilizing ACE inhibitors, there's a strong chance of like some renin angiotensin dysregulation and putting them on angiotensin 2 may be of benefit. But again, it's one of those drugs when you see it, it's, you know, there's a, again, it's more of a last ditch effort. And again, when you're titrating this, you're titrating it against a particular goal, a MAP goal of greater than or equal to 65. I think one of the big things is whenever you're utilizing any medication to be able to you know, titrate against the blood pressure, it's important to look at everything. Look at their urine output. Look at the overall patient status. Look at their perfusion. Do their legs look cool, clammy? Do they look like they're over constricted? Because sometimes one of the downsides about vasopressors is I think sometimes we can over constrict patients so we can start them on norepinephrine. They're getting septic. Oh, let's add on phenylephrine. Oh, okay. That one's maxed out. We're maxed out on those two. What do we add now? Okay. Let's add vasopressin. Okay. Now we got them on vasopressin. All oh, they're maxed out on that. Let's add angiotensin two now. And whenever you start seeing that, you just get so much intense vasoconstriction of the vessels that you're not actually kind of having an adequate like way of being able to determine if these pressors are doing anything. And so I think it's really important when you're utilizing these vasopressors, sometimes it might drive your nurse a little bit crazy, but if I have a patient who's on multiple vasopressors, I will go in the room and I'll play with the pumps and I will literally turn one off. See, go see what happens with the actual blood pressure. If the blood pressure tanks, I say, okay, well, they definitely need that one. And then I'll maybe I'll try and come down on the other one and say, okay, what happens if I titrate this one down? Oh, nothing really happens. Okay. What if I titrate it down a little bit more? Oh, nothing happens. All right, let's turn it off. Sometimes I think it's really important when you're utilizing vasopressors to be able to find which one of the vasopressors is truly benefiting your patient, because sometimes you may not be needing it. And all you're doing is just over constricting them. And then again, 
producing more. If you vasoconstrict someone so much, think about the perfusion to their tissues. It's going to be absolutely terrible. So I think it's really important whenever you're utilizing any vasopressor, try to look at the response that the patient is having to it. If you're utilizing one to get a better kick out of the heart, look at the heart. Get an echo. Look at what it was prior as you're titrating the medications. Are you seeing any improvement with that medication? Look at their urine output. Is their urine output improving as you're adding more medications? Look at their overall kind of like status. Are they getting better? Is their lactate potentially trending down? Is their mentation improving? Is organ function improving, et cetera? And I think that's a really, really important thing. With angiotensin 2, what I will say, Rob, that's a potential complication is that there has been reports of increasing thrombosis with this drug because it can induce kind of more of a pro-inflammatory state and can actually worsen like your multi-system organ dysfunction, which is already problematic in a patient who's septic. So again, it's one of those like add-on last-ditch efforts for this kind of drug. But that really kind of is the, the big thing for these. And again, Pure vasopressors, you can run phenylephrine um, through a peripheral IV. Vasopressin, please, for the love of goodness, don't do that. Run it through a central line. Arterial lines are always going to be beneficial when you're actually adding on these medications because usually you're getting down the uh, – these are more the add-on therapy. So usually by this time when you're adding on these medications, the patient's probably already on norepinephrine or epinephrine, and you're adding these on. So I'd say by that time, have an AA line. That was an, honestly a really amazing point you just made. I was I was actually going to ask you like, is there a, a limit to how many pressors you could use on a patient? You know, four or five. At that point, if you're getting up to that many pressors, you have to kind of reevaluate. Are you doing what you need to be doing here? Like, would you rather focus on like you said, you know, making sure dosages is one even working? I mean, how many times you do you see practitioners that probably have so many pressors? I mean, it's, it's, it's useless, right? It's just a waste. Yeah. There was a uh, one patient I had, um, I, I came on and they were on, um, four pressors. So they were on, um, epinephrine, norepinephrine, uh, vasopressin and phenylephrine. And they, wow. were, they were maxed on all of them. And, uh, the maps were kind of just like, you know, hovering just above 65. And so I went into the room, um, and I just, I turned the phenylephrine off. I said, okay, let's see what happens when we did that. Nothing happened. Their blood pressure didn't change at all. And so, okay, well, phenylephrine didn't really do anything. Let's, let's, let's try. Uh, sometimes whenever you drop vasopressin, you can really see an intense response, like a very significant change. Um, so I dropped the vasopressin, turned that off in their blood pressure tank. So I was like, okay, they definitely need vasopressin. Let's keep yeah, it on for go. a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then eventually I actually noticed that they didn't really require too much of the epi. And so I was able to kind of within the night get off phenylephrine, which was max dose and epinephrine, which was max dose and get those two off. And so sometimes you can do that. You just need to figure out what the patient responds best to. And this patient really enjoyed the levofed, uh, the norepinephrine and, and vasopressin. And so sometimes it's a matter of going into the room, standing at the bedside and just playing with those pumps and sometimes figuring out what do they respond to best. Don't just accept that, oh, their blood pressure pressure's low, let's put them on this drug and see if we can get that MAP goal up, figure out which one they respond to. And sometimes I'll change like the different like uh, dosages. So sometimes some institutions will say you can't go above this amount for this particular drug. Uh, sometimes there's actually literature to suggest that there's really no true like max dosage for some things. And so sometimes I will increase the actual max rate that they can run it at. So leave a fed, I, it says that you max at 30. Sometimes I'll say, let's go up to 50 and see if they actually respond better with that. And so sometimes it's just really playing with the titrations and seeing what they respond to best. And I'm no expert at all with this, but it really makes sense to me. Like if you're giving a lot of these different drugs and pressors, look at what you're doing and, and really say to yourself, 
yourself, is this working? And check it. Do exactly what, what, what Zach just said. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Look at it and, and, and play around with it and really just see if it's working or not. That really, that's, that, that definitely made and a I, lot of sense to me. Thanks, man. And I think one of the other things here is whenever you have a patient on multiple pressors, if you're running it, uh, they're, you know, a lot of these pressures off of a radial A line, I would be very careful. Um, I've seen a lot of people get over constricted because they had a radial arterial line in. Sometimes when a patient is on multiple pressors, you want to get a central arterial pressure. And so having more of a femoral A line or an axillary A line would be better kind of a representation of what there's true central arterial pressures. Sometimes I, I've seen it. I've, I, it's been funny because like, I've seen patients who had like a radial A line pressure and it was like, it was terrible. And I was like, I wonder if that's real. And so put in like a femoral A line or like an axillary line. And then I saw the pressure be exactly the same. But but sometimes it's really important because at least I knew I wasn't over constricting the patient. And so that's a really important thing to do also is yes, titrate your drips, but also make sure that if you have a patient on multiple pressors, consider putting in a femoral A-line um, or an axillary A-line to at least confirm that the pressure is real. All right, well, we're gonna keep things moving here. So Zach, we have two more kind of smaller categories left. We have other vasopressors, which is just one drug there. And yeah. then we have an oral vasopressor. So let's go ahead and start with the other vasopressor. Yeah, so this drug um, I've seen once. Um, and it was, again, I, I, you don't really use this drug too often. Um, this is one of those that like the patient is near death. Um, they're, uh, they're circling the drain and they're about to code at any second. And you're at, every presser possible that you can throw at this patient. And you're like, I don't know what else to do. They are going to die. Um, sometimes you can try this drug called methylene blue. Um, so methylene blue is a really interesting drug. Um, it, what it does is it inhibits what's called the nitric oxide synthase that reduces the nitric oxide synthesis. And nitric oxide basically helps to be able to reduce, if you have a, a decrease in the nitric oxide, you reduce the amount of what's called cyclic GMP with inside of the actual uh, muscle cells. That reduces the calcium entry into the sarcoplasmic reticulum. That increases the calcium that's in the cytoplasm now. You have more of that binding to the actual proteins in your sarcomere. You have more contraction, more of those cross bridge formations. And because of that, your smooth muscle is going to contract like a mofo and you're going to get an intense vasoconstrictive response and increase in your resistance distance and an increase in blood pressure. And so methylene blue is one of those drugs like you have a patient on multiple pressors. They are refractory to multiple multiple drugs. They're what's called refractory vasoplegic shock. And this can be in usually, usually septic shock. What you could do to see if the patient will actually benefit from this is if a patient is literally near death and there's like no other option, it's like, okay, I can try it. You give them a two milligram per kilogram slug and see what the response is. And sometimes they have a good, they have a good response and you actually can continue if they actually do. Let's say that their pressure changes like, oh my gosh, they were a map of like 40s and all of a sudden after this methylene blue, they're in the 70s. Sometimes you can see that. Unfortunately, when I use it, I did not see that. But I think it's important to be able to try that. And if you do, then you can continue an infusion of that for a map greater than 65. So you have used it. Yeah, yeah. And it, wow. it yeah, it's, it's, it didn't really. Because that was your last resort. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I had a patient on like every single presser, and um, it was just trying to be able to keep them alive and still uh, nothing. Yeah, no, not enough, not, not a response, not wow. enough response. Yeah, and then usually the other thing that happens with this is it it completely freaked out my nurse. Um, she was like, Zach, I don't even have an O2 sat anymore um, because these patients literally like you, they they actually kind of alters the pulse oximetry. Wow. Um, so sometimes they call it like a, a like a code a code smurf. They like actually have a kind of a bluish hue to them oh, afterwards. Gosh. 
Coast Smurf. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so it, it definitely threw off the pulse ox. And so they thought, oh, my gosh, now the patient's hypoxic on top of that. But really, it kind of just altered the way that the pulse ox was reading it. And so, yeah, this is one of those drugs that if you use it, it's really you're trying to be able to kind of keep the patient alive at this point. Um, one of the big things I think though with this drug is that if you keep it on for a long time, so if you start a bolus and then you put them on an infusion, you have to be careful because it can really increase the stress on the right ventricle and cause a, a lot of oxidative stress. Um, and so this could potentially be a bad thing if the patient has like some type of like G6PH deficiency, like hemolytic anemia, which is the, you know, at the kind of like on the low end of what's important at that point in time. But generally that's one thing. And it's a CYP450 inhibitor. So it can increase the concentration of a lot of other drugs. The other thing is it could potentially cause serotonin syndrome. But to be honest with you, these patients could probably use a little bit of serotonin syndrome uh, because usually in serotonin syndrome, they can get a little bit hypertensive. Yeah. So if anything, it'd probably be benefit of the two, but no, <laughs> that's, that's one of the downsides of this drug. So yeah, usually if you're adding on this one, it's more of just kind of like a, I, I hope that this works. Okay. All right. Well then I guess we have one more left, Zach, and it's, it's the oral vasopressor. Yeah. So oral vasopressors, there was a trial, it's called the Midas trial. Um, and it looked at midadrine. So midadrine is primarily, it's kind of like an oral phenylephrine, if you want to think about it like that. It's primarily like an oral alpha-1 receptor agonist. So it's the only one of these like technically like vasopressors where you can give it orally. And so if it is an alpha-1 receptor agonist, it's going to cause a vasoconstriction of the arterioles. It's going to increase your resistance, increase your blood pressure. Also squeezes the veins, increase in venous return, preload, stroke volume, cardiac output. So generally, whenever we have a patient who's in the ICU and we're trying to get them out of the ICU um, and they're on, let's say, I don't know, a couple, 5, 10 mics of levofed or norepinephrine, I'm like, okay, well, let's try to get that off. You can start something like metadrine to wean them off of an IV vasopressor. Um but their Midas trial really said that there wasn't much benefit to that. However, that's a lot of the times what usually ends up happening. So usually you'll start a patient like 10 milligrams of uh, metadrine, like Q, eight hours, and then try to see if you can wean off of their IV vasopressor. It's more of kind of that weaning thing. Um, with this, there's also potential benefit, I would say, if a patient does have something called hepatorenal syndrome. We talked about that with vasopressin and utilizing that. It actually may be a benefit to that one as well, because again, it can induce that vasoconstrictive response of the splanchnic vessels. So that's one of the particular things. I think one of the downsides of this drug is that you have to be, again, careful for a reflex bradycardia. And again, it's renally excreted. So if you have bad kidneys, you can potentially retain this drug and get more profound effect from it. But that is midadrine. Yeah. Awesome. So we talked a lot about vasopressors here. It was actually a really interesting discussion, Zach. Uh, I had one question though, since so you're since you work in the neuro ICU, is there one that's like your MVP, like your your absolute go? I know I know they have different indications and things like that. Of course, you have to really consider a, a whole bunch of them as we've talked. But is there one that you use more often than others, and and why is that? Yeah, so um, so primarily, I would say it's the two primary ones that we utilize on our unit um, is norepinephrine and phenylephrine. Um, and the reasons why is usually, and if a patient is kind of like has a, a poor EF, um, uh, they have some type of situation where they're, ha they're, uh, generally not a great heart. So they have a, maybe like they have a reduced ejection fraction, those situations, or they're a septic shock patient, norepinephrine is usually going to be the first line for those patients. So those are the definitely ones that I saw. Meaning because it has that, the alpha and beta. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's really good. It's definitely, I'd say one of the first ones that we add on for septic shock patients. Um, but also it's good for those patients with definitely that low EF. And so we see that a lot yeah. in my unit. Phenylephrine would be one of those. If we have a patient who is a lot of our patients have had strokes, um, and they have atrial fibrillation and 
And we can't really cardiovert a lot of our patients and we uh, have to try to rate control them a lot of the time. And so sometimes it doesn't really make much sense if you have a patient who is, uh, you know, tachycardic and you're putting them on something like metoprolol and putting them on something like uh, norepinephrine. Yeah. Um, it's a kind of like counterintuitive. Yeah, you're because, conflicting there. Yeah, exactly. Because you're giving metoprolol to block the beta receptors. And then all you're going to be getting out of norepinephrine is alpha one activity. And so yeah. in that situation, it makes no sense to just put them on phenylephrine because that's basically what you're getting. And so in those situations, those are the primary ones that we utilize. If you have a patient who is in the unit and they need a little bit of support, maybe they're septic, maybe they have some type of issue where we have to push their blood pressure up. That's often the times where we use vasopressors a lot in our unit is they have a stroke, they have subarachnoid hemorrhages, and we have to push their blood pressure up to perfuse the brain. We utilize medications like norepinephrine or phenylephrine. And sometimes I like to see which one they respond to. Sometimes patients yeah. truly respond differently. And again, that's what you have to think about. If you put a patient on phenylephrine, and you're maxed and they're not reaching that goal, all right, maybe they don't respond well to this. Try Levofed or norepinephrine, and all of a sudden, maybe it only takes a couple mics and you see a massive uh, response to it. But yeah, those are the two ones that I primarily So use. in that situation, trial and error is appropriate. Yeah, exactly. You got to find out what they respond to. Sometimes they you can go up and up and up on one drug, and they just don't get the response that you're looking for. And you switch them over to the other one, and they're like, oh my gosh, they don't need very much of this at all. And so that's one of the big things to consider is trialing other drugs if you're not getting a strong response out of the other one. Vasopressin, fingers falling off. You ever see it? Uh, so I saw. I, a, I can't get over that. I'm sorry. As you can tell, I'm still stuck on that. Yeah, I, I, I saw a patient because usually when we add on vasopressin, um, Again, you're usually having a septic patient or they're, they herniated and you're trying to be able to just at least keep them alive at that point. Or they have diabetes insipidus central because they're at risk of herniation. But uh, usually in this one, if you have them on it, usually by these times, we never have it through a, a peripheral IV. Okay. I will put a central line in no matter what, if that's the case. But um, I have had some of my colleagues um, say that they've saw it. And wow. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty, pretty, that's pretty a, nasty. That's a bad day. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty nasty. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, then you, you heard it, guys. That's it. That's vasopressors. Uh, there is podcast episode number 13. Uh, that was a lot of fun. That was a, that was a great discussion, Zach. Any yeah. any final thoughts? Well, if you guys notice, I did not mention dopamine into this uh, category of vasopressors. I don't think that dopamine should ever be utilized, just so that you guys uh, he, he know. He hates dopamine. <laughs> I, I do, go. man. There's multiple randomized control trials that go against utilizing dopamine, um, higher mortality rates, in crazy risk of extravasation necrosis. So you need a central line for those. And I just don't think, I think there's way, so many other of these vasopressors that we could utilize and benefit of that. In but, what, in what category would that actually fit in? Oh yeah, that's a great question. So it's primarily, it would be more particularly, uh, it can kind Actually, it's a little bit interesting in this drug uh, with respect to its mechanism of action because it's dose dependent. You can get a little bit of uh, inotropic activity. You can also get a little bit of vasopressor activity. Okay. So I'd say it kind of fits more within that inopressor activity. Cool. Kind of like category. Yeah. Interesting yeah. enough, but hey, you know yeah. what? You got to yeah. have some drugs you don't like, yeah. right? I mean, if, it, if, you don't, if it's like the zombie apocalypse and you got nothing else to use, then go ahead. But <laughs> Try to stay away from that drug. <laughs> but yeah, I, I hope that you guys like this. I know it was a lot of things that we talked about. Um, I definitely suggest that if you guys want to listen to this podcast and kind of try to remember this stuff, get those notes, listen along, and try to be able to kind of really digest this. It was a lot of information. But I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope it made sense. And uh, engineers, as always, until next time. 